listening to Cleaning the Case, a broadcast devoted to peeling back the culture and traditions associated with today's Christian faith through a widow, bride, and marriage theological perspective of Scripture. Welcome. My name is Andy Mendonza, and I will be your host. James 1.27 says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Before kind of just diving right into James 1.27, I want to uh, back up a little bit and read some of the preceding verses, beginning with verse 22. James says, Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror, and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Please forgive me for repeating myself because I have talked about James 127 in previous episodes, especially the first episode, uh, The Church Like Eve, and then it also uh, has come up in other episodes in the series that I did on the church as last eve proving that jesus came to redeem a bride Uh, but now i I really want to do an in-depth study of james 127 and i hope you will bear with me this is a passage that i have literally been studying since the fall of 1986 which it's hard to imagine studying one single passage of Scripture for such a long time. And a passage in a book, uh, James, that Martin Luther originally thought shouldn't be included as one of the canons in the Bible. And yet here we have this this one little passage. I mean, the, the book of James... and in its entirety, is a really profound book. But this one passage, just a couple of lines. And yet what is in this one little passage is the entirety of Scripture, reaching all the way back to Adam and Eve's sin and the fall, and our condition, our spiritual condition, Uh, Once Adam and Eve are removed from the garden, 
going all the way through to Jesus coming, offering up his life, and again, continuing on to the very end of Revelation and the marriage of the Lamb, the, the, the wedding feast in the, in the new heaven and earth, uh, in the new Jerusalem, in, in paradise, in a garden-like setting, the new Garden of Eden, if you will. At the time that I came across this passage, it was in the context of seeking God for the need to start a ministry with widows. And in my particular case, I was working uh, for another ministry in an inner city neighborhood in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and needs of older, low-income widows uh, started coming to me, and I was able to respond to some of those needs. But notice this pattern that more and more widows were coming to me with needs uh, that had very similar circumstances as far as living in, in inner city and urban neighborhoods, having very, very meager incomes, and no one that would uh, provide any kind uh, of help that they needed uh, in the areas of home repair. And that's what what the focus of the ministry I am now a part of, Widows Harvest Ministry, uh, one of the main areas is home repair, and the other is the ministry of widows, uh, which takes the, the form of a widow's prayer ministry. But back at that time, more and more widows were, were coming to me with these needs, and, and I began to see this pattern, and I began to pray uh, two questions. Is there a need? for starting a widow's ministry? And if so, is that something that I should try and take on, figure out how uh, to, to start a ministry such as this? Uh, several months passed, and I was looking up passages having to do with widows uh, in the whole Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, and I came across this passage in James. And I read it. Uh, almost the first question that came to mine was, how come I've never heard of a widow's ministry? Uh, either in a church, uh, and certainly not on a citywide basis, because this passage uh, spells it out so plainly. Not, not just the care of widows, but also the fatherless. But, but at that particular moment in time in my life, and what I believed God was trying to show me, direction he was trying to lead me in. Uh, the focus was for widows in this passage. So eventually, and that eventually was about nine months later, I resigned from my position with the ministry I had been with in order to start uh, this, this brand new widow's ministry in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And that conviction that I first had when I read this passage in the context of trying to seek God for the need to start a widow's ministry, uh, when I read it in 
the fall of 1986, um, that same conviction still today, 31 years later, remains with me. Only I've also spent a lot of time picking this passage apart, uh, breaking it down almost word by word and line by line in order to understand it in the context of Scripture in its entirety. And also through that process, realizing how profound this one little teeny tiny passage uh, really is. It, it really, I, I talk about widow, bride, marriage theology, and, and this one passage uh, is a complete picture of widow, bride, marriage theology. And if you remember, if you, you listened to another episode where I talked about this, that widow, bride, marriage theology is really the the same idea, the same thing as deliverance, redemption, and restoration theology, that when God promised to send a Savior, a Messiah, uh, a husband, a bridegroom, uh, that's what he sent him to do, to deliver us, redeem us, and ultimately to restore us with him for all eternity. And that's what widow, bride, marriage theology is also describing. It's describing our condition, who we become when we accept Jesus' proposal of marriage, and once we are fully married to him, when the wedding the marriage of the Lamb takes place, we will be fully restored with Him for eternity. And it's all there in James 1.27. The first thing I noticed in James 1.27 that I couldn't really reconcile in my mind, that I, I just didn't understand, was the word religion. I, I knew, you know, what preceded it, um, pure and undefiled religion before our Father. I knew pure and undefiled was talking about Jesus. I never had any doubt in my mind that that was meant to describe caring for the widows and the fatherless as being Christ-like. I mean, there was no disputing that in my mind. I mean, I, I didn't have any real proof of that, but uh, I don't know anything else in this world that's pure and undefiled, that, that Jesus is the only one who has come into this world uh, born without sin in order to be the unblemished sacrifice to atone for our sin, to take away our shame, the shame that was brought into the world by Adam and Eve when they sinned. But this word religion, uh, I hadn't been a Christian for too long, uh, just a, a couple of years, and 
the word religion or being religious was a very negative concept to me after accepting Jesus that we we can't be saved by religion alone after being in this ministry for a couple of years I looked it up in Strong's Concordance and and found out that this what what this word religion is is more accurately conveying is worship it's talking about worship pure and undefiled worship before our father is to visit the widows and the fatherless in their distress worship well that just opened a whole can of worms for me because i didn't understand worship in that context the only way I really understood worship up to that point uh, and defined it was by a worship service. What we do, especially on a Sunday morning when we come together uh, at the noon hour or whatever time, what your service that you go to takes place, uh, we come together for a worship service. And during that worship service, there are very set things that we do. We take up an offering, uh, there's prayer, there's singing, there's scripture reading, uh, there might be a time of, of giving thanks, uh, and there most certainly will be a sermon. And whenever the word worship came up, that's where my mind went. If I saw um, an advertisement uh, for a worship conference, I knew, and I still know, it is going to be about a worship service and how we can improve on our worship services, how we can make them more relevant. Uh, and but but worship services are they're sacred cows for us. Uh, there are specific things that uh, we believe have to take place during that time. Uh, and we believe those are all scripturally prescribed. And we may not feel guilty about anything else in our walk, uh, but we will feel guilty if we miss worship or what we consider to be a worship service. But for me, just, just reading this verse, um, it's saying pure and undefiled worship is to visit the widows and fatherless in their distress, which to me says we, me, both we and me, I have to go to them. Uh, because unless all the widows and the fatherless in their distress show up, on a Sunday morning for the worship service, this passage is saying we have to go to them. We have to come outside the camp, outside the city gate, bearing Christ's reproach. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking to the city that is to come, the new Jerusalem and the new heaven and earth. 
I just could not get my mind around this. I, I had no, nothing, uh, no insights, uh, nothing I'd ever heard, uh, ever studied up to that point, uh, presented me with anything that I could grab hold of uh, in order to understand worship in this context. So what I set out to do was to study worship throughout the entirety of, of Scripture, of the Bible, uh, to, to try and get a handle on what exactly worship is uh, in God's eyes, what he, he desires most from us, and what should be included in that. Uh, but I, I knew, even without understanding any of that, that based on James 1.27, caring for the widows and the fatherless was not an option for us, either individually or corporately. There are a lot of ministries, or what we call ministries in the church today, that you can't find a single scriptural basis for or reference for. Now they may fall under larger headings like like discipleship uh, but when it comes to the widows and the fatherless there, there may not be a more clearly prescribed area of ministry than this. And in addition to that it says it is pure and undefiled worship in God's eyes, Christ-like. So, where do you begin? How, how do you get to the bottom of this? Where do you even start looking? Well, one of, one of the first things that occurred to me was to look in the New Testament to see if I could find it recorded where a body of believers were gathered together for what we call a worship service, that that is described in the New Testament with, with the early church where believers gather together and it calls it a worship service. Now, really, the only glimpse that we have into kind of the form and function of the, the early beginning church uh, is in Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, because as it has been described to me, that they were doing so much wrong that Paul writes these letters to them uh, for correction. And because of that, we have a glimpse. We, we have insight into some of the practices that were taking place uh, in an early church setting uh, where the body of believers are coming together not only for the order of this time together, but also uh, what 
should be included and why? Quite honestly, and much to my surprise, the word worship, at least translated as the word worship, is only found in one instance in both letters to the Corinthians. And it's actually found in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 25. Now it is in the context of believers coming together and talking, I guess you could say that, that Paul is, is talking about the order of the service and what should be included when they came together. And he's specifically though, uh, in the context this word worship is, is used, he's specifically talking about the differences in tongues and prophesying. And you got to remember that back then they didn't have a written scripture, they had letters, so um, they, when they would come together and teach and have services, it, it was really coming from uh, personal testimony and not the written word. But, you know, prophecy was truth, speaking truth about Jesus, about who he was and who he remains, what he has done for us and who we are in him. Uh, beginning with verse 23, it says, So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all. And finally, verse 25 as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare, so they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. And this is probably the most common word, uh, Greek word, that's been translated as the word worship, and it's proskuneo, and it's where uh, we get the word uh, prostrate from, you know, to lie flat on your face uh, in reverence. Uh, but the root word, the, the word that um, this word for worship has been derived from is uh, the meaning of it is like a dog licking his master's hand. So in this instance where it's talking about worship and in the context of what we would now define or describe as a worship service, even though that's not what is used in Scripture to describe this coming together. This word for worship, there, there's actually um, five verbs that are all translated as worship or some uh, tense of the word worship and, and three nouns uh, that are likewise in um, translated as the word worship. But here, um, this word for worship, it's talking about the, the point of salvation, the moment of salvation, the surrender of our lives. I mean, this idea of falling on our faces before the God of all creation. 
surrendering our lives, submitting our lives to him, inviting him into our lives, accepting Jesus' proposal of marriage, becoming his betrothed, becoming a part of God's family, being adopted into his family, and becoming co-heirs with Christ. That's the context of worship uh, in this instance in 1 Corinthians. But you cannot find any instance that's describing what we do on a Sunday morning or in uh, coming together at different times to do the types of things we do on a Sunday morning, that it specifically calls that a worship service. In fact, at that time uh, in, uh, in Israel with the Jewish faith at the time that Jesus came, when they were talking about worship, they were primarily talking about prayer, coming together for prayer. Uh, when they spoke about worship, they meant prayer. Remember in Matthew 21, when Jesus goes into the temple, that's when he turns over the, the money changers' tables, and in verse 13 he says, It is written, My house will be called the house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. He says, His father's house will be called a house of prayer because that's what they considered to be worship. He doesn't say, my father's house will be called a house of worship. But today, our churches, that's what they're known to be, houses of worship uh, based on a worship service, that we define worship based on, really, a practice definition and not a written definition. Uh, it's based on a worship service and what we do in a worship service, what uh, the components of a worship service are. So, now what was I supposed to do? Um, I thought surely I could find the word worship or some tense of the word worship. Worshipped or worshipping, uh, having worshipped. Uh, somewhere in the New Testament that was specifically describing coming together as a worship service. And looking at, uh, looking back at James 1.27, I, I became even more struck by uh, what James is saying here. Uh, pure and undefiled worship. It's visiting the widows and the fatherless in their distress because there is no place else in the New Testament that, that this language, pure and undefiled, uh, is used to characterize or describe any action that we are called to take. And not only is it, it, it calling this, uh, this action of visiting widows and the fatherless in their distress, he is saying it's worship pure and undefiled worship. Uh, 
Now, for me, that that is so profound and yet has become so invisible. It's not seen as, well, we might recognize that, oh, yeah, sure, Scripture says a pure and undefiled religion is taking care of the widows and the fatherless, and that's all that's said. In fact, that's not only all that's said, but that's all that generally ever gets done about this. It doesn't go any deeper. Uh, Nothing more is really searched out to try and understand why uh, James, why God, according to James, considers caring for the widows and the fatherless to be pure and undefiled worship. My search for trying to understand uh, worship based on the entirety of Scripture uh, didn't stop there. In fact, um, I, I would have to say that it continues on even up to this very moment when I am uh, talking about this in this podcast. But I, I do want to share uh, my definition, what, what I think um, hopefully describes worship uh, more accurately, at least uh, according to Scripture. I've, I've looked up online um, definitions of worship in, in, I guess, every leading uh, Christian leader in modern times has all have all written out their own uh, definition of worship and quite frankly for me reading them there's there's a lot of ambiguity uh, in them but this is what i've come up with and it's not perfect i i think it would be impossible to write a perfect definition of what worship really is because it takes in everything uh, about our lives uh, in heaven and on earth. It, it is the big picture uh, of our faith. Worship does take place in the context of a church, in a worship service, but that's certainly not the, uh, the extent the most important part of our worship, at least not in God's eyes. In, in fact, 99.999999% of what God desires from us that he considers worship all takes place outside of, of that setting uh, in a church and a worship service. It, it happens when we come outside the church doors or uh, come outside the camp or city gates bearing Christ's reproach. But this is my definition. Worship is everything that we say and do everywhere and at all times in the denial of self as offerings through our sacrifices slash deeds slash works that we do unto the Lord that fulfills what it means to love the Lord our God with our hearts, minds, and souls and to love our neighbors as ourselves 
especially that which we do outside the camp as we bear Christ's reproach. This may sound kind of strange that I have words like works and deeds and sacrifices and most of us have kind of been taught that, oh, sacrifice has no place uh, in, in the Christian faith today. Sacrifice, the idea of sacrifice and sacrifices all, all disappeared with Jesus when he offered up his life. Uh, as a one-time sacrifice to atone for our sins for all times, for those who accept him. But that was a blood sacrifice. The sacrificial system in Israel was more than blood sacrifice. For instance, the thank offering or praise offering was a significant part of the sacrificial system. In fact, there there is an ancient rabbinical belief that one day all prayers are to cease except for prayers of thanksgiving and all offerings will cease except for the thank offering or offerings of thanksgiving. Think about Jesus. The number of times that, that he gave thanks. He gave thanks uh, before he broke the the, the fishes and the loaves and fed the multitudes. And we interpret that as he said a blessing before the meal. And so that's what we do. That's about the only time we give thanks is when we sit down and have a meal. In fact, we would almost feel like it is blasphemous not to say a blessing over a meal, especially if we're in public in a, in a restaurant. Um, that's not what Jesus was doing. He was offering up a thank offering. And to prove that, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, before he does that, he looks heavenward, and in the hearing of those who were gathered, he gave thanks to his heavenly Father. Why? Because those were all Jews who were there, and they knew what a thank offering was. It was profound. That, that's why in Ephesians it says, in all things give thanks to our Heavenly Father in Christ Jesus' name. What is it talking about? It's talking about a thank offering. Sacrifice of praise. It's the exact same thing. It is still as relevant today and God desires it from us today as he did then. It has nothing to do with atonement or blood sacrifice. It has to do with our ongoing worship. Uh, works. Works are nothing more than deeds. They're the same thing. These words are all interchangeable. When we talk about works, works are offerings. God gives us opportunities. In fact, in Ephesians, again, it says that he has prepared good works for us. Opportunities to worship him by denying ourselves. And if this is still confusing to you, uh, let's look at Hebrews 13. 
Remember I said earlier that, that the book of Hebrews is really Christianity 101 for those early Jewish converts uh, explaining Jesus based on the history of Israel um, and how everything was pointing to Jesus coming beginning with verse 12. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through him, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name, and do not forget to do good, good works, and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. If you think that sacrifice is no longer desired by God, well, this is the proof that it is. Both of these, the, the sacrifice of praise and uh, deed offerings, both of those fulfill. The first one, uh, loving God with our heart, mind, and soul, giving him thanks in all things in Christ Jesus' name, and then deed offerings, fulfilling what it means to love our neighbors as ourselves. And I just want to point out that this word, that says, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. It's only used three times uh, in the New Testament, and they're all in Hebrews. The first time is in Hebrews 11.5, by faith Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And in Hebrews 11.6, the very next verse, And without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And then finally we have this verse in Hebrews 13.16, And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So hopefully you can, can see based on this that um, the idea of uh, that sacrifices, works, deeds are really all synonymous. They, they are considered by God to be offerings uh, and he desires these and um, he's pleased with these, but we have left that that whole idea. We so struggle with with the idea of works, and that's why Martin Luther wanted James to be left out of the canons because it brings into uh, the mix this idea of works, and that we think that we can get uh, redeemed or, or be good enough uh, to have eternal life. Uh, by pleasing God in this way. No, we have to believe in God first. Um, 
that's the only way we can then please him through our offerings uh, is we have to have faith in him first if this you know if we could be saved through works then adam and eve would have been able to atone for their sin in this way and reverse what they did and they would have never had to leave the garden of eden but because we have come to define worship based on a worship service the only way we really define uh, the idea of of offerings uh, is what we put in a plate that's passed around uh, in a worship service uh, that's that's what the idea for us for giving god uh, our offerings is is all monetary uh, and that doesn't require anything uh, from us especially uh, what it looks like to to love our neighbors as ourselves if if okay a worship service you know and I do believe it, it's worship, but it it only fulfills, you know, the idea of of loving God with our heart, mind, and soul. We can't possibly love our neighbors as ourselves uh, by only putting money into an offering plate. And really, if you're having a hard time believing that this is the way that we really define worship as the church today all you have to do is follow the money trail you know scripture says where your treasure is that is where your hearts will also be the single most expensive line item in a church budget is essentially for a worship service when you add in all the cost for holding a worship service for an hour or two on Sunday morning. When you look at all the related costs for salaries, uh, for property, for furnishings, for... Uh, in 2014, this is hard to believe, but of those individuals who gave 10% of their income to their churches, and this figure does not count those who gave less than that, the amount actually topped $50 billion in giving that year to local churches and denominations. Total giving was in the neighborhood of $115 billion, and one major denomination by itself generated around $11 billion. According to one study, the suggested range is between 45 and 55 percent of the total budget going towards staff salaries uh, but there are uh, churches that actually spend as high as 65 to 70 percent of their annual budget on church staff salaries in mark chapter 12 beginning with verse 38 jesus is in the temple uh, with his disciples and he says, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. But they devour widows' houses and for show make lengthy prayers. 
these men will be punished most severely. And then right after that, Jesus sits down opposite the place where the offerings were put in and was watching the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. It says, many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Jesus calls to his disciples and says, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. You know, they were giving out of their surplus of their wealth. When we give out of the surplus of our wealth, we are giving out of the surplus of every other area of our life because where our treasure is, that's where our heart will be. And the same applies to our churches. And I, I know this is it's kind of hard to, to process, maybe, if you've never thought about worship outside of the context of a worship service. But that's what James 1.27 is telling us. And in, in fact, uh, two, two things, two more things I want to say about, about worship. One of them is in uh, Romans 12.1 when it says, because of, of God's mercy, we are to be living and holy sacrifices, which is our spiritual service of worship. That doesn't just take place in a worship service. That's, that is encompassing all of life itself. And what does it look like to be a living and holy sacrifice? What, what is our model for that? Jesus. Jesus is the first living and holy sacrifice. And his life, before he lays down his life for us, that is the picture of what it, for what it looks like to be a living and holy sacrifice. And as living and holy sacrifices, all of that, in, in the, the greater description of that is uh, spiritual service of worship, not spiritual worship services. They are the polar opposite of that. But, but what is the biblical precedent for worship? Where, what can we look back to in order to understand what God originally intended from us as worship. How far back do we have to go? Do we just go back as far as uh, Moses uh, and the, the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant and God giving instructions to establish a system of worship of faith? Or do we have to go even further? What about all the way back to Genesis chapter 25, verse 5? This is actually the first time the word worship appears in the Bible, in the Old Testament, uh, is in this verse that, that the Hebrew word is translated as the word worship. And what's going on is when Abraham 
is taking Isaac up uh, and is obeying God's instructions to, to take him up and sacrifice him. Abraham said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. The Hebrew word uh, that's translated as the word worship uh, in this case uh, has essentially the same basic meaning as the New Testament Greek word for worship that we've already discussed, prosku neo, which means to, to, to bow down, to, to fall on our faces, or the idea, the image of a dog licking his master's hand. That's the, the first time the word worship appears in the Bible, in the Old Testament, uh, after Adam and Eve have sinned. And that doesn't give us a lot of information. So we have to go back even further. And that makes sense because biblical precedent is, is something that, that we really uh, underestimate its, its significance, that we should be able, for the, the major things that we believe and we understand, there should be a biblical precedent for it that in most instances goes all the way back to the creation story in the Garden of Eden. Even though the actual word worship is not used, or the Hebrew word for worship hasn't been translated as worship. And obviously when you look at when the word worship first appears in the context of, of Abraham and going up to offer up his son Isaac. Uh, it's the difference between a fallen world and a sinless world, which is hard to get our minds around. The, the fact that in, in the garden what God creates is a completely sin-free environment. And when he creates Adam, Adam is sin-free. By virtue of having no sin, he has no self-awareness, which we know uh, does not occur until both he and Eve eat fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And that's when they realize they're naked and they hide. They're, they're filled with shame and they try and hide their shame from God. But until that, that time, Adam, beginning with Adam, he has no self-awareness. Everything is worship. His entire being was created to glorify God as well as all of creation. His thoughts, his actions, so what God gives as instructions to him is in Genesis 2, 15, when God says his purpose for putting Adam into the garden is to dress and to keep it. 
And the Hebrew word for to dress it is the word abad, which is akin to the Greek New Testament word latruo, both of which mean to serve, but serve in the context of worship. Uh, looking at, at Romans 12.1, looking back at that which has already been mentioned, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Latruo has been translated in the King James Version as the word service, but in the NIV, uh, it translates the word as worship. That is the same idea. Spiritual service of worship. It's, it's essentially talking about the same thing in Romans 12.1 as God's original instruction to Adam. His stated purpose in the garden is to dress it and to keep it. The word for to keep it in the Hebrew is shamar. And it means basically to hedge about, like with thorns, to guard or protect. What it essentially is saying is Adam was to maintain the order of what was there, to not let anything harmful or deceptive enter in which is different than guarding someone because when you're trying to guard someone you are trying to keep them from escaping and that's not the case here you are trying to protect what is on the inside to keep anything from coming in and interfering and uh, disrupting the order of it and I assume that idea of to hedge about is, is where we get uh, praying for somebody to, to pray a hedge of thorns around them or a hedge of protection around them. Well, you can trace that back directly to this instruction or, or purpose, stated purpose for Adam for uh, dressing and keeping the garden. If we jump ahead to James 127 and we look at the last part of that says and to keep oneself unpolluted by the world that word uh, toreo uh, in the Greek uh, means to attend to carefully take care of to guard uh, metaphorically to keep one in the state in which he is to observe, to reserve, to undergo something. And there is a uh, figurative meaning uh, for that word that conveys the idea of keeping unmarried. These words, these two words are, are connected. They, the, the etymology of the first word to keep in the Hebrew, uh, talking about Adam 
dressing and keeping the garden and this this word at the end of James 127 that says and to keep oneself unpolluted by the world but the very curious thing is that in James 127 in the original Greek text the word and is not there it's it's been added and in some translations, the, the word and is in italics. Uh, in some, it's in brackets to denote that it was not in the original text. But in some translations, they don't even bother to do that. And, and what's happened is that has, has changed the entire meaning of James 1.27. It makes it this list of not only is pure and undefiled worship visiting the widows and the fatherless in their distress, but we also have to keep from being polluted by the world. Well, what does that mean? Um, as sinful beings, we cannot come up with an objective list. Our, any list that we might come up with for what that means to keep from being polluted by the world is very, very subjective. In fact, probably every denomination uh, throughout the history of the, the Christian faith uh, could come up with their own list of do's and don'ts uh, for what they believe it means to not be polluted by the world. But you have to understand that last line in the context of the first part. It can legitimately be inferred that James 1.27 is saying pure and undefiled worship before our Father is to visit the widows and the fatherless in their distress in order to keep from being polluted by the world. And by the time uh, we're, we're finished with this discussion on James 1.27, I think that coming from that position will be clearly proved, uh, completely borne out. Uh, when we go back to the Garden of Eden and Adam and the precedent for worship that didn't have anything to do with what we characterize as worship today based on a worship service, and, and even with Israel, that when they talked about worship, they were, they were talking about prayer. And that's part of the problem today and why widows and the fatherless uh, are, are so invisible, so not a priority for the church today, especially when it comes to older widows. They're almost completely invisible because we don't understand this in the context of worship. James 1.27 is saying, just like God said to Adam when he said to keep it, to, to preserve the order that God had established uh, the garden to be for his glory and honor, Adam fails. Adam fails. The instruction was given to him. Eve gets it secondhand. Um, Adam allows deception to enter into the garden.
and to corrupt Eve first, to deceive her, and then she becomes the deceiver of Adam. He succumbs to her deception. But this idea of keep, uh, to preserve the order of in, in Genesis 2.15, uh, but then also this idea of keep, saying the same thing. It's saying the same thing, but in the context of a fallen world with fallen beings who, who struggle with self-will, self, selfishness, self-worship, uh, and what rightfully belongs to God. And maybe this will make sense. I, I, I read this before. At the beginning of this episode uh, in James chapter 1, um, what precedes James 1.27, and I'm going to read it again and, and look at a couple of parts of it, and hopefully um, you'll be able to see what I'm talking about, that, that, that James is really giving kind of it is not an instru- it is an instruction but it is also a warning you know what god says as far as adam's purpose in the garden to dress it and keep it he's just stating his purpose uh, it's really not a warning i mean there is one warning not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil that's you know the instruction that's given to him in the form of a warning um, what James is saying here is, is that as well. It's an instruction to us, but it's being given to us as a warning. Whereas when I read this uh, previously, I started with verse 22, but I'm going to back up all the way to verse 1 to read this because the word uh, deceived uh, or a form of the word deceived uh, is actually appears three times in this chapter leading up to uh, this final verse, uh, James one twenty seven. James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls, and its beauty is destroyed. 
In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. This is the first time deceived comes up. And then beginning verse 17, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. This is the second time the word deceives comes up. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless this is the third and final time deceive themselves and their religion is absolutely 100% worthless before we take a closer look at the bigger picture here uh, of these passages and the way that they relate to uh, the garden of eden and God's purpose for Adam to uh, dress and keep the garden uh, and then specifically looking at that in the context of Eve being deceived, uh, deception not only overtaking her but then she became the deceiver of Adam and how James 1 and, and all of this is tied together. Do you remember when Jesus was talking to the crowds and his disciples in Matthew chapter 23, beginning with verse 1. Jesus says to them, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide 
and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. Then a little further down in this chapter, verse 15, this is, this is the chapter titled the, the Seven Woes. One of the woes that Jesus confronts the leadership with is, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Now, both of these things are, are tied together because what Jesus is essentially saying is that, that they're saving folks to a system, to be loyal and obedient to a system. And what, what, what Jesus is said in the first instance that that the people need to obey the word of God, which seems obvious, but the leaders are putting it in the context of the word of God and being obedient to it as applying to a system that really does not resemble God. And that's the heavy yoke that they are being put under. So it's the same thing as us presenting the truth of Jesus as being the only way that we can be saved and be with God. And then forgetting what Jesus looks like. Forgetting the model that he lived out for us before he offered up his life. And calling them to be obedient to a system that really doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. That's what James is saying here in verse 26. I, I've heard all kinds of interpretations uh, about this passage, but, but none of them are in that context. They're usually talking about gossip and uh, idle words, uh, non glorifying to God words and language. And that's not what he's talking about. You know, when he says, keep a tight rein on your tongue or bridle your tongue, don't tell people that God loves them if you're unwilling to love them yourself. Don't instruct people in the ways of the Lord when you were unwilling to model it for them first, that like Jesus, who went and gathered his disciples and he took them almost literally by the hand out with him and modeled for them what the kingdom of God looked like, what it looked like to be a living and holy sacrifice. That's what he's saying. Don't, don't, don't tell people about your faith when you are not willing 
to demonstrate your faith. You are not willing to serve and not be served. So that's what he's warning us about. And I'm going to give you a picture for what I'm talking about. And if this isn't your faith, the care of the widows and the fatherless, if your worship is not pure and undefiled, don't boast about your faith. Don't boast about who God is in your life because you are living in an adulterous relationship with the world. There's just one more passage that, that needs to be connected between what's going on in the Garden of Eden in the context of worship and the first chapter of James. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 11, chapter 11, verse 1 through 4, and this was covered in much more detail in the first episode, talking about can we have the right Jesus of salvation and yet the completely wrong Jesus for living it out, which we can according to uh, verse 4 in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. But Paul says in verse 2, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. We can draw a line from what happened in the Garden of Eden when, when Eve is first deceived and then she becomes the deceiver of her husband, Adam, to what Paul is saying right here to us as the church, both male and female, that our vulnerability is that of Eve for being deceived. And according to verse 4 in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, deception comes upon us when it comes to us, we accept it easily enough. We can see that just by looking at Eve in the garden when the serpent came, how easily she was deceived and accepted. And then not just her, but Adam. She goes to him with an unbridled tongue, and he accepts it without any resistance. Now we look at James chapter 1. Interestingly, all three words that are translated as deceive or deceived are three different Greek words. And, and the first one means the idea of being seduced away. And, and that, that's what's happening to Eve in the garden uh, when, when the serpent is deceiving her. He's seducing her. He's, one translation says, uh, beguiling her. Eve was beguiled by the serpent. Uh, the next time this comes up in verse 22, the idea of uh, 
being deceived is false reasoning. I think about it. There for a moment in this description of, of Eve uh, being deceived by the serpent, you know, asking her, what, what, what did God say? Oh, that we'll die if we eat from, from this. And the serpent says, oh, surely you're not going to die. And that begins this process, this reasoning process. And based on false reasoning, she's seduced, she's beguiled, and she eats this forbidden fruit, so to speak. And this last instance, in verse 26, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. So let's look at these three instances in the context. Verse 16 says, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. That's what happens to Eve. She becomes deceived by the serpent. Paul's warning in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 expresses fear that just like Eve was deceived by the serpent, we will also be tempted away from Jesus and who he really is and the lives that we are supposed to live out that were modeled to us by his own life, taking our minds away from the purity and simplicity that we have in him. In the next instance, he says, don't merely listen to the word, do what it says. That if we are just hearers of the word, we deceive ourselves. What James is saying here is really radical and only now applies because of the fall, because of Eve and Adam's uh, deception. What he's saying here now is not only can we be deceived like the serpent deceived Eve, but it says we can deceive ourselves, which is entirely different. We can deceive ourselves and then we become the deceivers of others. Only hearing the word and not doing the word, fulfilling the word, is in itself deception. Again, going back to Matthew 23, verse 3, So be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Do not be merely hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Again, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. This is in verse 15 of chapter 23. You hypocrites, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Why does Jesus tell them this? For the same reason that James is telling us this, 
in chapter 1 about not being just hearers of the word, but doers of the word, being like Jesus. He is our model for living out our faith, not just receiving the message of salvation, but fulfilling that message based on Jesus's own life and not just presenting to converts obedience to a system, a system that today, particularly today, has really become far more of a business model than something that actually even remotely resembles Jesus. So what James is actually presenting in chapter 1 can be overlaid with the Genesis account of Adam and Eve's deception and the subsequent fall. That's what James is saying to us here, leading up to what, in a fallen world, our focus in Christ as his bride is supposed to look like. James 1.27. And then if we insert into this 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 4, when Paul says, I have betrothed you to one husband, to Christ Jesus, and I desire that you be pure as a virgin, you remain pure as a virgin, and not be deceived as Eve was by the serpent, and your minds be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ, James 1.27 is the standard for keeping ourselves from being polluted by the world. It demonstrates that we have not succumbed to deception, which Paul also says in 2 Corinthians 11.4, that we accept easily enough. And that the, the devil really has no defense against pure and undefiled worship. At least, I'm convinced of that. And if you examine the landscape around the world and the invisibility of the care of the widows and the fatherless, coming from the church, especially the church in America... We're no threat to the devil, to the principalities and powers above, because our worship is so has become so impure and defiled that we pose no threat to the devil whatsoever. I want to end this episode on James uh, here, and we'll pick it back up. In the next episode, uh, or part two, uh, there's still so much more to say and so much more to learn about James 127, and uh, I will be focusing on uh, the words uh, undefiled and the word visit, or to visit, as in visiting the widows and the fatherless in their distress. But I want to uh, conclude this episode 
With the unmistakable garden imagery surrounding Jesus' arrest, his death, and his resurrection, and where we are heading to, what we are looking towards, what we are anticipating. When Jesus is arrested, he's arrested in a garden. He is, when he is crucified, John 19, verse 41 says, At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. So Jesus, in effect, was crucified in a garden, or what had at one time been a garden, but a place of death, of desolation. Uh, representing the fall itself. And Jesus is then, after he's uh, given up the ghost and buried, he's buried in a garden tomb. And of course, we know that on the third day after descending into hell and defeating death, he's resurrected. He's resurrected uh, in this same garden where he was buried in a tomb. Mary Magdalene, who is the first one to see Jesus resurrected, she mistakenly thinks that he is the gardener. Finally, in Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, it is unmistakably describing a garden setting in the New Jerusalem. Listen to what it says about the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21, verse 27. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful. Jesus has taken away our shame or deceitful. There will be no more deceit, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river, stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. As Christ's bride, we are now... In this life, until we are with him for eternity, we, we are in effect like Adam and Eve. We, we are to dress and keep the garden. We are to remain pure and undefiled. We are to keep from being in an adulterous relationship with the world. Our worship has to be pure and undefiled based on this criteria found in James 1.27. But I, like Paul, who I can certainly in no way compare myself to him, yet I do find myself with the same fear that we as the church, Christ's bride, both male and female, have in fact been deceived 
just as Eve was, to the point that our worship has become so impure and defiled that a critical mass has been reached by us as the church, and we don't even have the slightest inkling that this is our condition and that we have no one else to blame. We can't point the finger at anyone else or any place else but ourselves. You've been listening to Pleading the Case with Andy Mendonca, posing the question, is the church today the pure and undefiled bride that God desires us to be? Or, like Eve, have we been deceived and our minds led astray from our pure and sincere devotion to Christ? And I sincerely welcome your comments. Feel free to leave them on our website, or if you want to send me an email directly, you can send it to andy at widows.org. Until next time.